Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. On Zechariah 8, the prophet is speaking to us this morning about how to live in the good times. Oftentimes in Scripture, we find inspiration and encouragement to endure hardship. But now, we're learning how to live when the times are good, when God is determined to bless us. You remember, right now, towards the end of chapter 8 of Zechariah, we're, we're still not quite to the point where Zechariah answers the question that was asked at the beginning of chapter 7, which was the question about fasting. Is it time for us to stop fasting and start feasting? In fact, the passage immediately after the one that we're looking at this morning is the answer to that question that we looked at way at the beginning of this series. And so we're almost done with chapter 8 and with this middle section of Zechariah's book. So that after, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after, we'll be looking at kind of the last big section of Zechariah's prophetic work. Now what's been happening for us in the last two chapters is a kind of uh, recapitulation or repetition. You remember God is giving a sort of summary of the prophetic message that came before the exile. He's repeating himself. He's telling the people once again all the stuff that he told their fathers that their fathers disobeyed, which is what led to the exile. He's reminding them that that's why the exile took place. And so in these verses that we've just read, you get not just a summary, but almost a summary of the summary. So We get a thumbnail that encapsulates everything that God has been saying to us, but it does something more than that. What we just read, it's just four verses, but in those four verses, not only do we get kind of the kernel of the reminder, but we also see it change as the context has changed. You might think of this as a summary of the old doctrine in a nutshell, except it's not the old doctrine anymore, it's the new doctrine. Because it's not speaking to the people before the exile, it's speaking to the people after the exile. It is the pre-exile message updated for the post-exile community. A reminder of what led to the bad consequences, but now instruction on how to live after that day is done. There are three things that you can see here emphasized. The centrality of God's purpose, for one thing, in justice and in mercy. You also see that the old work of judgment brought disaster to Jerusalem, but the new work of blessing will bring good to Jerusalem. And then finally, how we should live in the good days. And it's the third point that I really want to emphasize. How should we, the people of Jerusalem, the recipients of God's good blessings, now live? The answer that God gives us through Zechariah is simple. He says, live without fear, love what God loves, hate what God hates. That's how you live in the good days. You live without fear, you love what God loves, and you hate what God hates. Live without fear, he tells us. We talked about this last time, fear not. But why do we have no reason to fear? Well, we have no reason to fear because the thing that God was doing that we should be fearful of is now over. The time of judgment is past, and now this is the time 
of blessing and prosperity. If you look at the first two verses of our text, which is all one sentence here in our translation, you see that point, fear not, but do you notice where it is? It's at the end. It comes right at the end of verse 15 after a semicolon, almost as an afterthought, but that semicolon suggests that that the statement fear not is built on everything that comes before it. Like everything that comes before the semicolon is the rationale for fearless living. The reason why you don't need to be afraid. And in that rationale, God reminds us of what He did, and then He tells us what He will do. He reminds us of what He did. When He was provoked to wrath, God says, He brought disaster, and He did not relent. That's the work that He did, and that's the work that filled His people with fear. But that work, as we saw last time, was an act of justice. It was an act of just punishment for disobedience and sin. It was justice and it led to exile. That's what God did. But what will God do now? Now, what God is determined to do is not what He did before. Now, punishment is over and grace will reign. What God will do, He says, He will bring good to Jerusalem. He will bring good to the house of Judah. And that's not justice. That's mercy. God is determined now to do mercy, and His mercy leads to a new Jerusalem, to a prosperity of His new people that was promised, but never before experienced in quite this way. We see justice, and we see mercy. And in both cases, we see the focus here is on God's purpose. I purpose to bring disaster, he says. And I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem. God's purpose, whatever it is, is always fulfilled. When God declares his purpose, you can have confidence that what comes afterwards, it's going to happen. And if his purpose is to bring disaster, then fear. You have every reason to fear because it will come to pass. But when God says that His purpose is to bring good, by the same token, you can have confidence that it was good that God has determined to bring, He will bring. You can count on the promise of grace to be fulfilled. And you should notice too, there's a reciprocity in the way these things are termed. As I purposed, so again have I purposed. So just as in the past He purposed to do justice, Now, in the same way, to you might think of like an equal but opposite degree, I intend to bring good. And that's where the goodness of this good news really comes out. Because the justice was hard. The punishment was extreme. The suffering and the pain, that was beyond the pale. And God is saying, if you can look at that, you can see the the full measure of it, you begin to understand just how good I intend to be. Because just as hard as that judgment is, that's how good this goodness will be. That's how good my mercy will be. You can measure the force of His mercy by the force of His former judgment, in other words. And that's how we get to fear not. It's only once you've gone through all of that that this idea of fearlessness is restated for us. Because of all of that, fear not. Your fathers, they were warned against their sin They had every reason to fear because they did not repent. 
That fear was justified. But you, God says, have no reason to fear because by God's grace, you've been brought to repentance and you have received a promise of good. And you have every reason to hope. You have every reason to be filled with joy. And that's why the foundation of your new life in Christ must be fearlessness. There is no judgment for us to fear. Now, over the course of the last year during the pandemic, we've talked a lot about being fearful. It turns out that everybody you know who's on the other side of the line, they're the ones who are driven by fear, not you. And so we've been told by people that we shouldn't be afraid of getting sick, that we shouldn't be afraid of losing our health. We've been told by people that we shouldn't be afraid of losing our rights. And yet it seems as if everyone around us, as much as they protest to the contrary, is driven by fear. And this is true for human beings, not only in crises, but in everyday life. The choices we make, no matter how we dress them up, oftentimes are motivated not by a confidence in good things, not by a confidence in God's intention to bless, but a fear that he won't. A fear that things won't go well, that we need to hedge our bets, that we shouldn't expect everything to work out the way that we hope it will. And so we need to be cautious. We need to be afraid. This is the way we live our lives. And no matter how many times people tell us over and over again, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, it's hard for us to trust in those words. Hence the repetition over and over again. Number one, God tells us not to fear. The angels, when they come in the New Testament, say, fear not, for behold, don't be afraid. And here we get the rationale, like why you don't need to be afraid. Because even though you're a sinner, God has covered that. And he intends to treat you as the righteous. He intends to prosper you as he has promised to do. So as believers, we don't live our lives, or at least we strive not to live our lives and to make our choices out of fear of the consequences. Instead, we live in anticipation of the blessings that God has promised. They may come to us in unexpected ways. They may not be what we thought they would be, but we live in anticipation and expectation that God will actually do the good that he has promised. That's what it means to live without fear. And if we are in Christ, then we are called to live fearlessly. But not only that, we're called to love the things that God loves. God tells us what not to do and what not to love at the end of the passage. And he explains you shouldn't do these things and you shouldn't love them because I hate them. That's the rationale. But before he gets there, he tells us what we should do. And the logic is the same. He's telling us what we should do because those are the things he loves. And then he's telling us what we shouldn't do because those are the things that he hates. He tells us what to do. The implication is that we should do these things because God loves them. So it's as simple as that. Whenever you're asking yourself how to live as a believer in Jesus Christ, just love what God loves and hate what God hates. Tune your affections in that way. And you're doing what God has directed us to do. And so the question is, what does God love? Point out to me the things that God loves so that I can love them as well. 
And God, through Zechariah, gives us a couple of things, and they're not necessarily the things you might think. When God gives us representative examples of what it is he loves, the focus here is on integrity. God tells us two things that should be done by receivers of his grace. He says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. So, first of all, we should be truth tellers because God loves truth. We of all people should be truth tellers because God loves the truth. Obviously, I mean we should tell the truth about the gospel. We should proclaim the truth about the grace of Jesus Christ. But I don't just mean that. And God doesn't just mean that. He wants us to be truth tellers in general. He wants us always to love the truth and to love telling the truth. Because truth, knowledge of truth, speaking truth, creating an environment, a community of truth telling is what brings freedom. In John chapter 8, Jesus says that believers are set free from sin by the truth. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is why believers of all people must be truth tellers. And when we think about telling the truth, as we think about any sort of moral duty or obligation, we often think of it in the negative. So when I'm striving to be a truth teller, what I'm actually doing is I'm trying hard not to lie. Like to tell the truth means don't lie. And so when I do something that maybe I shouldn't have done, if I do something that I was specifically told by my wife not to do at any cost, and I still do it, and she sees the consequences and says, what happened here? In that moment, if I want to be a truth teller, I struggle to say, how can I answer this question in such a way that I'm not technically lying, but also don't get any punishment as a result. I must find a way to thread that needle because I don't want to be a liar because I'm supposed to be a truth teller. Is that truth telling? No. No. Truth telling, like any kind of oath keeping, it's not about the bare minimum of not technically violating, not crossing the line. It's about living into and inhabiting and fulfilling the commitment, the promise. So the whole truth and nothing but, in other words, like a determination to see the truth for what it is, to declare the truth to other people, and not to fall back into convenient lies when they serve our purpose. Not to be silent and, and let the lies stand when the cost of being a truth teller is too much. That's what speaking the truth means. And the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a community of truth tellers. So if it's a community of people who are unafraid to declare the truth of the gospel, but also go to great lengths to put on a show before one another so that we appear to be good and righteous, and you can't really see the extent of our imperfection, are we a truth-telling community? The answer is no. Because we may be doing the bare minimum in declaring the obvious truth, but if we still live self-righteous lives where we're striving to look like good people in front of one another, we're not inhabiting the truth fully. 
until we're in a community with one another where we are unashamed to expose our shortcomings, our sinfulness. We're not fully living the truth that we've been called to. This place should be a place saturated in truth. One of the things very intentionally that we do in our liturgy is we fill it with the Word of God. This is a power in the Word of God. If you've ever wondered, like, wait, wait, there's another reading from Scripture? Didn't we already have one? No, wait, two before? Yeah, because it's full of Scripture, because there's a power in being saturated in the Word. And if that's true, then imagine the power of being saturated in the truth, being surrounded by people who are committed to speaking the truth to one another in community. We should be truth-tellers like that because God loves the truth. We should be peacemakers too because God loves peace. Now, Judgments that are rendered at the gate, the way that it's described here, these are public judgments. These aren't just private verdicts, they're public verdicts. They're court sentences. So the peacemaking that we're talking about here is a collective endeavor. It's not just an individual one. Our community, our society should be called to making peace. True judgments that make for peace. That the community of grace should obviously render true judgments. Truth-saturated people will judge things truly and rightly. But there's more to it than just judging truly. Right? These are true judgments that also make for peace. And as we saw last time, peace is shalom. Peace is wholeness. Peace is completeness. So as we render true judgments, these are judgments whose goal is not just to declare the truth, but also to make whole. Also to put the pieces back together to promote human flourishing. Truth-saturated communities, like the one the church is called to be, they create freedom, and that freedom promotes human wholeness. In our judgments, we should seek to promote that wholeness. That's what peacemaking is. It's not just speaking the truth. It is, to use the biblical term, speaking the truth in love, with a motive of love, to restore peace and wholeness to our broken selves and our broken communities. And if we're going to love what God loves, it starts with loving one another and desiring the wholeness of one another the peace of one another, the peace of our communities. This is the way to love what God loves by loving the truth in this way. But the other side of the coin is we're not just called to love what God loves, we're also called to hate what God hates. Now, there's a truism that says you are what you love, that your loves shape you. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Your love for me will motivate your response. Your obedience will flow from love. And it's there in John 14, as he says these words, it's immediately after that that he promises the gift of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, that we see fulfilled at Pentecost. So these things are connected. The, the filling of the Holy Spirit is connected to a love of Christ that leads us to imitate Him, to keep His commandments. Loving Jesus will lead to obedience. But there's also this inverse relationship. Like disobedience, even on the part of those who love Him, has 
a tendency to quench the fire of that love, to blunt the force of the love we once felt for Christ. To put it simply, we are shaped by what we love. You read James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. He makes the case that we are formed first and foremost by our affections. Sometimes the way we talk about this, it it seems we're formed by our beliefs or by uh, intellectual propositions. You are what you believe. But that doesn't quite go deep enough. We are what we love. We, we pursue the desires of our hearts. If those desires are focused on good things, then we love the good, and it forms us. But if our desires are focused on bad things, on things that corrupt us, then we are formed by those things to have an affection for what destroys us. That idea of being formed merely intellectually is, is a thinner idea, a thicker idea is to understand we are formed by our longings by our desires, by our loves. Just not just what you think, what you believe that make who you are. It's what you love. You're formed, in other words, by who you worship. You're formed by who you serve. If you follow Jesus, but you don't hate what God hates, then you're still being shaped by your sin. It's important both to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. So God tells us here, don't devise evil in your heart because I hate corruption. Between each other in our relationships, we should never devise evil. We should never have evil intentions for one another. These kinds of plots, these biases, the sort of uh, bitter, poisonous attitudes we can have towards other people, they undermine the wholeness of our brothers and sisters, even if we never act on them. The fact that we harbor them, that we scheme against one another works in the opposite direction of the love that we've been called to. Instead, we should be promoting their wholeness. We should be devising plans for their good. The habit of tearing one another down always undermines a community of grace. There's no way to be a truth-telling community, a, a community focused on shalom, if privately, in our minds, we're always tearing one another down and wishing one another ill. So even in our hearts, we have to change the direction of our passions and and hate what God hates, hate the evil devisings of our hearts, because even that kind of inner corruption is abhorrent to a holy God. So don't devise evil in your hearts, and also don't love false oaths because God hates lies. Now once again, He doesn't just say hate lies. He says false oaths. And so the context here is public. But oaths which are sworn publicly before the the judge, before the congregation of the church. Oaths that we take publicly. Commitments that we make before one another should not be false. Taking marriage vows and not keeping them taking membership vows and breaking them. We don't think of these things as serious, but God does. He says we shouldn't love false oaths. A community that loves lies will become ensnared in deception, and the cost is freedom, the true freedom that we have in Christ. 
All of these things, in other words, operate within the context of the city or the community. We're not just being told the things that that we as individuals should love and hate. We're being told what we should love and hate as a people, as a church, as a family, as a community. These are things we should love together and inspire one another to love them. These are things we should hate together and inspire one another to turn our backs on those evils. That's how communities are formed by the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus makes a good community. When you think about the communities that matter the most to you, oftentimes they're not formed through intention. You think about the community that has shaped you the most, it's probably family. And you didn't get to choose what family you were born into. Depending on the circumstances, you might think, well, nobody would choose this. But our families have an enormous influence on shaping us. Sometimes one that seems inescapable. And family is one of those bonds that we cherish above all others. It's the reason why even in the church, there's something special about the family as a, as a unit that God has ordained. We can be sentimental, even romantic, about the importance of families. Our Lord Jesus didn't indulge in sentimentality, though. And sometimes when he spoke about what makes family It sounded very different from the way that that we talk about these things. If you look in Matthew chapter 12, this story tells kind of a challenging account of Jesus and his relationship with his family. Jesus is teaching disciples. He's surrounded by people. And as he's surrounded, his mother and his brothers approach. The implication is they're trying to get through to get to him, but because of the crowds, the crowds are so thick, they they can't get near him. All these people who are not blood relations have more privileged seats, closer to Jesus. And so the word goes through the crowd, and they're like, whoa, 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 we we should let Jesus know that his mother and his brothers are here. And he can tell everyone to kind of, okay, move away now, because my family has arrived, and we need to let them come up and speak to me. There's maybe even an implication there that they've come to maybe uh, take him in hand a little bit, kind of direct him away from the path that he's traveling right now. And we read these words, Matthew 12, this is starting in verse 48. He replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You hear those words and you kind of wince for, for Mary. And you're like, oh, Jesus, don't talk about your mom that way. Like, like, that's your family. But the point that he's making is an important one. You don't become the brothers and sisters of Jesus through physical birth. You don't become the brothers and sisters, the relatives, the family of Jesus through physical birth, but by spiritual birth. And all those who are born by the Spirit are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. All of us made into His family. The way you know who Jesus' brothers and sisters are is that they, in His words, do the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, they love what He loves. They hate what He hates. They do the will of the Father in forming their affections according to to his. 
That is because God has purposed to do good to them. Because God has purposed to do good to us. So as you look to Jesus, let your prayer be that the Spirit gives you power to love what Jesus loves and to hate what Jesus hates. And let your life be formed by the affections of God and an affection for God. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.